0: Welcome to Stick Together, Australia's only national radio show focusing on industrial, social and workplace issues, distributed nationally on the community radio network. Stick Together would like to acknowledge the lands that this program was produced on the lands of the Kulin Nation and pay our respect to Elders past and present. We acknowledge this land was never ceded and we stand in solidarity with Aboriginal people across the continent in their fight for land, freedom and justice. I'm your host, James Brennan. Thank you for joining me on Stick Together for this episode. Thank you to the Community Broadcasting Foundation for their ongoing support of the program. On this episode, we're continuing a discussion on the Defence Strategic Review and its connection with the AUKUS deal. We're also remembering Daniel Ellsberg, who recently passed away, and his contribution to the peace movement. Our guest to discuss this is renegade activist and anti-military researcher and campaigner Jacob Greck. The Australian Defence Strategic Review and its kind of intersection with AUKUS, uh, but in particular, I guess last month, we were talking around how the, you know, you know, the nuclear side of things and, and submarines and how all those kind of aspects really all came in together. But on this episode, we're going to talk a little bit more about what strategic review is and I guess how the whole thing sits within Australia's current and projected military strategies. But before we get into that, listeners would have probably seen that Daniel Ellsberg passed away the 17th of of June and he was a pretty good age at 92 but I think I, I think apt to have a little bit of a discussion about him and the impact that he had on discussions around the US military and particularly around whistleblowing and Jacob thanks again for joining us on the show
1: no worries James always a pleasure to be on 3CR in a different capacity
0: and across the whole you know, community radio network as well we are today and jacob is someone who you know has obviously played a really significant role in the australian peace movement over the years what kind of things have you got to say about daniel ellsberg and his contribution to the peace movement.
1: Daniel Ellsberg was a strange one. First of all, he's a hero. There's no taking away from what Daniel did back in 1971 and his advocacy on behalf of whistleblowers and truth speakers in the ensuing, gosh, what is it, 52 years. I think the point I want to raise about Daniel, one that a lot of people might not know about him, and that is he started life, he was in the military as a hawk. He was very pro-Vietnam War. He was pro-pushing American power. Abroad, he believed in manifest destiny and and all the rest of it. And that's not to put him down. A lot of people did, and a lot of people, particularly growing up in his day and age, in the way, he did. It was the stock standard bonds of, of people in the United States, particularly in the middle classes. Daniel realised at some point while working for the military as a um, as an analyst, as a, as a um, intelligence analyst, that. The war was wrong. And this is the point I want to make. He wasn't like someone who was born and bred in the peace movement or has always been anti-military or looking for other ways of resolving conflict. Daniel was, in no uncertain terms, a hawk. And the reason I want to raise that is that it takes a lot of courage. It's easy for a peace movement person or someone who's always been a lefty to come out and say the things we do. But for someone from his background to come out, much like Edward Snowden, I guess, in later years, and change sides and realize they were wrong and say, I was wrong. And this is only after he raised concerns with people inside the military establishment. You know, hey, man, is there any other way we can do this? This just isn't working. This is wrong. Too many people are dying. To come out and say the only thing I can do is to release these papers to blow the whistle And I think that's Often left out The chain Daniel Ellsberg Was um, able to make To release The documents he did He used to have to Take his teen, Young teenage kids Into his office With him, Page by page On a photocopier Copy things Put them back In the file Just do a briefcase's Worth at a time You know Today we press a button And bang We can have 50 filing cabinets Transferred But the amount Of risk he was under And the amount Of tension He must have felt Being in a the defence department, defence intelligence, photocopy room, doing these pages one by one. Listeners of a certain age might remember having to do things like that, not necessarily for whistleblowing, but just photocopying documents. We're not talking about days of automatic feeders and all these kind of things. We're talking about putting a document face down on the glass, photocopying, waiting 30 seconds, lifting the glass up, turning the page over, putting the next page down repeatedly. I can only imagine the the tension. The system turned on him the way it did. He went on to become an advocate. For free speech and backed so many people, and of course now, as the the way works with history and hindsight, because seventy one, we're talking fifty years ago. He's now it's now become accepted to speak about Daniel Ellsberg as a hero who helped him develop American democracy, who did all these great things. Even you know everyone from the New York Times, even President Biden would recognise Daniel Ellsberg's contribution to American society, and that's what happens as things get further in the past.
0: Is but, that, do you think, you know, is that, is that just about that passage of time that's released, you know, say comparing to the, people, the figures that you mentioned before, is, or is, is it attributed to, I guess, the peace movement and, and broader kind of social movements that were happening at that time?
1: People now know through the work of people like Ellsberg and the broader peace movement that the Vietnam War was wrong. Just like people are starting to understand that Australian involvement in Afghanistan and Iraq was wrong.
0: Find out a bit more about Daniel Ellsberg's story if you don't Know about it. Certainly, you know, some inspiring things there to read and and listen, or however you're going to consume that. But before we get on to the strategic review, I just thought it might be worthwhile for, you know, us all to get a little uh, bit of an update on Julian Assange. I know that there's been some, you know, movement and, and certainly some public kind of statements and things that have been said recently. And I thought, you know, especially talking about Daniel Ellsberg, that it would be good to link those things together because, as you said, he's really paved the way for some of the modern day whistleblowers
1: his appeal was knocked back and the us are trying to extradite him to the united states that's what's that's what's happening right now we've been saying it's the eleventh hour for a long time they hasn't got much time left but we're now at a point where any day now the order could come through he could be taken out of belmarsh put on the bus put on the plane sent to the united states and we might not even know about it until the plane has left, but there are still a number of avenues that his legal team are trying. The European Human Rights Court could still hand down an injunction to stop him being extradited. Um, the the British courts could say what's the word hearing appeal based on the fact that they've kept secret the findings that the security firm U C Global was providing information directly to the C I A and um, WikiLeaks editor Christian. Jefferson just in the last few days published a lot of those things on WikiLeaks. There's a whole lot. And the other thing, of course, that could still happen, and I'm not asking listeners to hold their breath, the Australian governments could still have a role to play. If the Australian government came out and said publicly and loudly and clearly, we do not want our citizen to be transferred to the United States. We want you, we want the British government to send him." back home to Australia if this is where he wants to be he might not ever want to come here and who could who could blame the bloke the way we've treated him they could bring him back here with a recognition of the time served already and face saving opportunity for the american government and that would be to my mind and to a lot of legal people's mind um the best way for this to be resolved in the immediate future is for the Australian government, for Anthony Albanese, who for years has privately been, been calling the whole thing a travesty of justice, for years, for him to stand up, tell the truth, speak the truth, and speak to his mate in the United States, Joe Biden, and just tell him how it is. The Australian government has a, has a great record of getting people out of unjust, hostile penal institutions when they're in Iraq and Cairo, China. Vietnam, but it's time to put away the thoughts of American exceptionalism and treat the United States of America the same as we would treat any other country. And what's the worst that could happen? They say no. Well they're saying that anyway.
0: Well let's hope that there is some movement in that, not just for Julian and his family, but for the people that have been fighting for his release for a long time. Jacob, I wonder if we maybe we can start by talking about what is a defense strategic review and how does it differ from, you know, things like the, you know, Defense White Paper, which kind of released by a new government or say every five or ten years or something like that?
1: Yeah, well, a very, a very big difference. First of all, a defence white paper is a government policy document. It is the government saying what we feel um, our defence and strategic targets are for the for the coming period. We saw this in 2020. We saw this in 2016. Can't remember when the one before that was, about 2011, I think. It was one in the early 2000s. They're, they're regular things. And generally, every new coming government, um, every change from Labour to Liberal, wants to put its stamp on defence and foreign policy and create a new, not always white paper, they take time but some kind of strategic review. They're not always called defence strategic reviews. They're called policy analysis. They're called independent reports. The last one, I think, in 2020 was called a forced posture review. But this one is a little bit different in that it's a, well, it's an independent review. They call it the independent review, but it's not actually an independent review. It's independent of the government. Okay, this is asking vested interest with a knowledge of the of the defence, let's call it sector, let's call it industry, whatever you like. Industry is probably a good word because a lot of it is about industry. Um, to put forward their thoughts on where the Australian defence force is now and where it needs to move to, and um, I've got it on the, I've got you on the phone actually because I've got I needed my laptop to to have the defence strategic review open. In front of me, so I can I can refer to it as I'm as I'm talking to you. I don't have paper copies of these things anymore. um much like we were talking about the difference between Ellsberg's day and our day. The idea being that people outside the government know best, that the government recognizes that it's a new government, that it doesn't have all the facts and figures of the military, so they they empowered and panelled, sorry a defence strategic review team. First of all, it was headed up by the head of the um, defence forces, Angus Houston, and by um, a previous defence minister, Stephen Smith. But they also had a whole team behind them. Air Chief Marshal, of course. Gabrielle Burrell, who's um, the head of communications, the, the journalist in charge of the media unit, the Department of Defence. Professor Peter Dean, who is a defence and strategic analyst from University of W.A., but he's not only uh, – is he in itself is, isn't is even independent. He's currently working for the State Department. He's heading up two U.S. State Department projects. So what we've got here to start with is a defense strategic review written by former um, – what's his name? Defense Minister Stephen Smith, head of the Defense Forces, um, Air Chief Marshal Angus Houston, the media operator, and then someone working for U.S. State Department um, – Peter Jean, and then Richard Vag, who's head of the artillery of um, the Australian Army, and he's written a whole lot of a whole lot of opinion pieces over the years, and a couple of books about how we need to beef up Australian artillery. He then got secretariats, in, including, I'm just having a look here, Emma Baxter, Alistair Dicker, Colonel Alistair Dickey, Commander Christopher Doherty, Lieutenant Aaron Fisher Stamp, whole lot of military bods and civilians who largely come from CASG the procurement arm of the Australian military you got people who are working in strange capacities i can't find out what they do but when i dig into their um, histories and profiles they you know come from places like lockheed martin it's not at all independent. What it's doing is it's saying to the military industrial complex, what do you want, what do you need, where do you think we should go? Okay? So that's the that's an important thing to 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 bear in mind, who put the strategic defence review together? And it is largely the military industrial complex. When you look at get yourself a copy, you can get it from, you know, just just do a web search on strategic defence review 2023 and look at the list of authors yourself and and um look up their histories. You'll find it. It's not, it's not all that hidden. So it's the military industrial complex. But then if it was independent, you'd think there would at least be some voices, if not from the peace movement, I don't expect them to ask you or I for that, you know, to, to submit to it. But, you know, people from the, you know, United Nations Association of Australia, the Red Cross Humanitarian Relief Agency, some kind of university foreign policy departments that weren't fixated in war and weren't known hawks. Mm. It's not dependent at all. They haven't asked anybody who has ever expressed the slightest opposition to any Australian slash US military maneuver. The only person I can see in this whole list who has expressed any doubt whatsoever is... um, What's his name? I think it could be Richard Vag. Yeah, um, who's written a whole lot about the demasculinising of the Australian military, the fact that it's getting too soft, that too many (laughs) women are there that there are too many physiotherapists and psychotherapists and what happened to the good old days basically where men were men and knew how to bloody fight. Um, That's the only opposition voice that I've read, okay? Um, Having said that, his same bloke is also massively anti-gay, anti-anti-anti-anti-woke basically. Um, So that's who they've asked. Now, when you look at a defence strategic review, you need to look at the, you know, it's about is... The Australian army is the Australian military fit for purpose. Fit for purpose is a is a three-word phrase that's been banding about a lot in the lead up to this. You gotta ask fit for what purpose. You can't determine whether a military is ready unless you can tell them ready for what. Mm. Because ready to fight another oil for war in the Middle East is different to ready to protect our border from um, invasion already to fight a different type of war in South America. And what they've what this defence strategic review has done and bearing in mind it's the, we've got the redacted copy, the unredacted copy is twice as long as what we've got, all right? So God only knows what's in that. We can only guess. But even even this redacted copy firmly points the finger at China. Mm. It it and there's no um there's no question. There's no question of that. Even if, even when you look at um, Albanese's Albanese speech or Miles' speech, they're talking about China, and there's no, as I say, there's no, um, there's no shying away from it. We've and always think, shied away from the fact that China was the enemy,
0: and that's you know spelled out, I guess, in the you know, types of weaponry they're talking about, needing range and force projection. And there's one quote, and I think, you know, if others don't want to read the whole, uh, you know, paper, there is a good uh, article from The Guardian where you can, uh, it has some good quotes in there. And I wanted to read out this quote that says, there is only a remote possibility of any power contemplating an invasion of our continent, but that the threat of military force or coercion against Australia does not require invasion. I thought that was really interesting because, you know, most of the time, I think when people talk about defense strategy and and they're talking about what we should be spending on the military and things like that. Mm-hmm. That's the kind of thing that people mostly imagine is, you know, we've got a country and we need to be able to protect its its borders and, and I, you do, know and,
1: and, and we do.
0: Yeah, but that that is kind of that's indicating that, you know, that's not necessarily the type of warfare that this paper is talking about and you know, I think you know goes to your point about the the subtext of the whole paper is is that the threat is China and it, yeah interesting about the range and force projection missiles and and you know the uh, nuclear field submarines coming to that that we spoke about on the last episode as well
1: yeah and this is and this is why you know the Australian defense force it's got the defense strategic review has elucidated five points Defend the nation um, directly. That's always what it always should be for any national military. Um, and it's about denying people access to our borders. And that's fair enough, too. But then they talk about um, forward force projection through the northern approaches. Now, that that's a different thing again. That means being able to reach outside our direct area to attack in the Southeast Asian region. The Southeast Asian region, you know, we're not talking about Singapore or Vietnam here. All right, we're talking, we're talking about China and that's spending so much of Australian resources. They've even remodelled, we've cut down our um, our Bushmaster requirement, for example, to about a third of what it previously was. The idea being that we don't need that kind of vehicle anymore. Um, and we're going to put the money we save in that into creating our own long-range ballistic missile operated from the north of Australia. So it's a, it's a change in saying that the Australian military um, should be fit for any number of range of purposes. in the Austral- And look, here's something, I'm going to step outside my peace nick- hat for a moment. And back in the late 90s, I was fortunate, unfortunate enough, take your pick, to be talking to a pretty senior person within the Australian army who'd just come back from Iraq and he was opposed to Australia being so closely intertwined with the US military. And part of, his, part of his rationale, his rationale for it was that, quite proud of the fact that, and I'm not proud of it, but just put, paraphrasing him, the Australian army fights above its weight. They're soldiers, they are the best soldiers in the world, according to him. He said to me, the U.S. US soldiers, the grunts, are just machinery operators. And he pointed out, he said, when we have six people in an armored vehicle in the car, each one of those six people can drive it, can do minor repairs to it, and can operate all the machinery in it. With the same six Americans in a Humvee, only two are licensed to drive it. Only two know how to use the navigations. Only two know how to use the machine gun. All right. And he said, they're not soldiers. They're machinery operators. And I'm seeing part of what this is, is, is moving away from our um, generalist military capabilities, which is, um, as I say, I'm not proud of. I'm not one of these people boasting about how great Australian soldiers are by any stretch of the imagination. But we did have that generalist approach. But now we're getting what they're referring to as a focused approach which means that Australian soldiers will be focused on how to operate particular bits of machinery. That's a, that's going to be a part of it, the retraining of Australian soldiers. And it fits us more into the AUKUS model, into interoperability with the United States, okay? Because when you look at what they're talking about, assigning ourselves the northern approaches of Australia, working closely with AUKUS, we're saying this is going to be our area of operation for the Anglo-American Australian No question about it. We don't need you anymore in Iraq. We don't need you anymore in Afghanistan, especially if things like, you know, your Air Force pilots are going to refuse commands if they think that their target is not a military target, especially if you're going to get, you can't control your media so that the atrocities, the murders of your soldiers on the ground are going to be splashed across the front pages all around the world. They don't need that kind of shit from Australia and they don't need the small amount of personnel that Australia can provide overseas. What they need is Australia to become this northern region, part of the Anglo-American global capital fighting force. And that's the big thing, the change in the weapons. They're asking long-range missile system. That's not to deploy anywhere else, and it's not even to defend Australia. It's to forward project AUKUS force into the Indo-Pacific region, when they're talking about cutting down the Bushmaster, the tank requirement, they're talking about using Australia less in foreign wars. They're talking about Australia becoming this part of the machine. And that's the scary part for me. So when you look at that, the thing you need to look at is, well, that this is... It's, it's it's hard to put into words, but from a defence analysis point of view, if you're fit for purpose, if your purpose is the potential of an attack from China, not even an attack from China, but conflagration between the United States and China, China, Taiwan, whatever, to get ready for that, then these are the smart moves to make. Absolutely. My question is that that is not what Australia's main defence priority is. Our defence priorities, this hasn't addressed global warming. It hasn't addressed refugee. And the um, destruction of societies throughout the Pacific region because of sea level rises, because of um, climatic, extreme climatic events. It hasn't addressed any of that. It's taken away without addressing the thing that every major military planner has said for the past 20 years has got the the most potential to disrupt society, put that aside and said, no, no, all we got to do is worry about a conflagration involving China. And that's the scary thing, that by focusing on China, we ignore everything else and become just part of a multinational US-based force to counteract the expansion of China. And the expansion of China, I mean, the paper says that China is involved. I mean, it's it's hard not to chuckle when you see Australia saying China is the, the largest military increase in the region since the end of the Second World War. And we say this as we make the announcement that we're building nuclear submarines. I say this as we make the announcement that we're spending $100 billion to have a a sovereign missile um, capacity in the North. We say this as we enter AUKUS and give United States, United Kingdom access to all our facilities. We say it as we do another military bilateral status of forces deal with Japan and give Japanese military access to Australian resources and Australian bases. So it could be argued, I'm not I'm not a signifier. I don't necessarily take China's side in this because they're the other side to America, a pox on all their houses as far as I'm concerned, but we're not paying attention to the reality of the situation. We're saying this is what the military industrial complex wants us to do. We haven't really acknowledged anybody from foreign affairs from peace movements, from developmental, from humanitarian organisations, from climate change bodies about what we need to be fit for purpose for. And we've taken it directly from the head of our Defence Force and two other military officers, one of whom is working for the State Department, and one of whom is the head of our art- artillery brigade. It's it's ridiculous, and it's um it's irresponsible.
0: Thanks so much, Jacob. Thanks so much for tuning in. You've been listening to Stick Together. I've been your host, James Brennan. And if you want to hear any past episodes of the show, head to the 3CR website or wherever you normally listen to podcasts and you can find them all there. If you want to get in touch with myself or the other producers at Stick Together, please send us an email at sticktogether3cr at gmail.com. We'd be happy to have a chat or find out about any workplace issues or campaigns that you've got going on. Thanks so much for tuning in and until next time, stick together.
2: In the street, the house was always full of kids. Nobody knew where the hell we all were, and nobody knew what we did. We rode our bikes all over the world, we'd hang out at the beach and the park. But they'd never ask, we'd never say, long as we got home before dark. Some nights my dad would turn and say These are the good old days They're the good old days These are the good old days They're the good old days These troubled times, they're the good old days 21, we had no mobiles or emails and we all seemed to manage just fine We drove around town being wild and crazy and somehow most of us survived We fell in love, we got ourselves jobs, we're all just living in a dream We had kids and cars and a house in the suburbs life was meant to be easy it seemed Good old days These troubled times They're the good old days In a few years' time We'll be having a beer Laughing as the sun goes down I'll look at you and I'll smile and say Those were the best years going around when fuel was just a dollar thirty-five We could still lie in the sun we could live and love and work and dream And there was hope for everyone These are the good old days They're the good old days